message we're going to look at today is how God consecrated the line of Aaron. So you can look with me in Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8. And we're only going to read a couple verses. We'll make a couple comments. Look at one more passage. And then we're going to make some applications. So we are starting in verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 8. The Bible says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the offering, and the two rams of the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting, verse 6, and Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with, with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him. We're going to look at those. Tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thumen. We're going to look at those. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 10. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Then he brought the bull of the, offer, of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons and laid their hands, this is verse 14, on the head of the bull of the sin offering, verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Now, interestingly enough, when it comes to this passage, um, we see there uh, that Moses had to do something for Aaron. Now, speaking of brothers, because Moses and Aaron are brothers, I don't know if girls have the same, I'm sure girls do, sisterly rivalry. I'm sure you do, but it's just different than guys. Kevin probably can really speak to this and share many stories of brotherly rivalries. This is how my brother and I had one. Um, so growing up, we love sports. Now, my brother and I love sports differently. You say, how differently? Well, I love sports in the sense that I would do a lot of research, I would watch a lot of videos, I would watch sports. My brother just was athletic enough that he could just say, yeah, okay, I think I want to go play soccer now. I'll be really, really good at it. I wasn't that way. I had to, like, put a lot of work into it. So for him, and because he was older than me, he would love to challenge me to things and just show me that he was better than me. So, <clears throat> enter in uh, a best-of-seven game basketball series, one-on-one, in the summer. Best-of-seven games here. The first to, to 21. So over the course of the week, each night, my brother and I played, and because he's four years older than me, he jumped out to a huge lead. So he had won three games. I'd only won one game. And he had taken it easy on me on that one game. So if we're doing our math right, he only has to win one more, and he's won our best out of seven series. But then he went classic my brother, classic Chad. He started goofing off and not taking things seriously. Before he realized it, <laughs> it was in the seventh game, because I had won the next two games. And it was 20 to 19 me. Now my brother <laughs> has a horrible temper. Horrible temper. And he realized what he had done. He had goofed off and he had lost two games. We're in this final game seven. I was taking it pretty seriously. I was pretty, I was pretty motivated to beat him. The last game point, and needless to say, when I hit the final jump shot to win, it was not good. So we didn't talk, we didn't talk to each other for a long time after that. He yelled something horribly mean at me or whatever, ran inside the house, slammed the door. And I just was outside laughing and chuckling to myself because I somehow won, mostly because he was being my brother and didn't take it seriously. Now... Why was that classic? Well, because brotherly rivalries are a very serious thing. I don't know what girls' rivalries go about. Sarah, it's do you want to share our families? Not good? Is it like, okay. Is it, what? Is it food? The feud. Oh, yes, the feud. Yeah, we can talk about that. Um, Grace, um, that's, that's the 
<laughs> they're smiling, but I feel like there's more to that story than maybe it's the eye. Well, why do I bring that up? Well, it's interesting. In that passage that we just read, um, we talked about, look, he, he looked at Moses and Aaron. And God told Moses something very specifically to do. He said, consecrate your brother. Now think about this for a moment. Where has Moses and Aaron come from? For the, this entire time, Moses has been the one in charge. It's been Moses who leads the people out. It's been Moses who performs the miracles in Egypt. It's been Moses who goes up Mount Sinai. Moses who goes into the tent. Only Moses could go before God. But here, God is saying something pretty crazy. He's saying, no, I'm moving on from Moses as this high priest, and I'm going to your brother. And Moses, I need you to set him up for success, because he, he needs you to consecrate him. Moses, in his pride and selfishness, could have probably said, no, I want to be the main man. I want to be God's man for the people. I love the people. I've put so much of my life into these people. But we don't see that. Um, So the story passes on. Priests, as we know, played an essential role in the Jewish faith. And it's because of that that there was a very specific pattern that needed to be followed. And we're going to look at that. So as we're reading through that, you might have noticed... There were some weird things that Moses had to do to Aaron. And they're from verses 6 down to verse 10. So what are those articles of clothing? Well, part of being the high priest and being allowed to go before God and before God's presence meant wearing the right clothes. Now, thankfully, we don't have that today in church. We don't, we don't get judged or, or, or killed by divine fire for not showing up for church in the, right, in, in the right outfit. And we can thank Jesus for that because of his death on the cross. Um... That was not so for this high priest. So look in verse 7. The first thing we see there in verse 7 is the coat. Now the coat's pretty, pretty basic. Everyone in this time wore a cloak. They wore something to cover them. It was very dusty. At night it would get cold. So they would always have a coat on. This was commonplace. Verse 7, there's a sash that, that they wore around to keep it in place. Verse 7, also there's a robe. Now that was kind of interesting. I was like, how do you wear a robe and a coat at the same time? But what this would look like is like a big piece of cloth. So like, all right. Have, you, have your parents ever cut a trash bag, cut a hole in a trash bag and floop over top of you if it's raining? It just, there was a guy in our dorm who literally just did that. He was walking outside and he didn't have a rain jacket. John King. So I got outside and he, and he didn't. He, he didn't have a rain jacket, so he goes in and he steals a trash bag, cut a hole in it, floop over top of his book bag and everything. He was good to go. That's essentially what this was. It was a, it was a royal piece of fabric. It looked very royal. Um, and it fit over this rope. I think, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, that's what God required. Verse 7, the ephod. Now, what is this? This is a piece of clothing tied around the torso, so it would fit over the chest here, and there were some pretty important things on it. There were 12 stones, and on those 12 stones were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and why was that important? Because when the high priest would go in before God's presence, he had the people on his heart, quite literally, on his heart. They were why he was going in there. Verse 8 talks about a breastplate, and that was worn on the chest as well. It was tied to the ephod by four golden rings, and in that they held the urim and the thummim. and we've seen that. Now, what are those two things? Well, we have the Holy Spirit, so when we pray, we say, Lord, please give me guidance. We open up God's Word. We talk to people who may, who may give us counsel, but ultimately it's God's Spirit that really convinces us of things, and we try to follow His will. In this time, the Urim and the Thummim was oftentimes how God would communicate specific information. So they were two stones, and they don't really know, exactly know how it worked per se, uh, because, well, we weren't there. But if the high priest would beseech something of God, he would say, please show me your will for this battle coming up. Or 
if you're with us in the Bible reading, we're in Joshua, and we just finished all of these battles that they fought. Every time beforehand, Joshua prays, God, is this battle going to be ours to win? He says, yes. Well, the high priest would do the same thing. And on these two stones, that would somehow communicate. It's like if they were in there, whichever stone he pulled out, that would kind of show him what God's will was. And God blessed that, and that's how God communicated him. So he could have confidence. If he asked him a question, pulled it out, had the urm or the thumen, that was God's will. On top of his head, he would wear the turban, and tied to that turban was what the Bible called, I believe it was in verse 9, he referred to it as the golden plate or the holy crown. Now, this was tied to the front of the turban with a blue cord, and engraved on it were the words, holy to the Lord. So really, this priest was a man set apart, holy to the Lord. And now we, we take a step back, and that was very academic, that was very textual. I feel like I just read you guys like an encyclopedia. So you may be thinking... Maybe not so much, but I thought this. I said, okay, I can kind of see the whole sacrifice thing. I get that. points to Jesus. Now, why on earth would I care about some guy in a dress thousands of years ago? I mean, that's a question. Like, how does this apply to me? Well, I'm glad you asked, or I asked, or whatever. Now, like we've mentioned, priests played an essential role in the Jewish faith. But as great as his office was, it was only a foreshadow of the ultimate great high priest. We've talked about Jesus Christ a lot in the book of Hebrews. Because of the cross, Jesus and not Aaron and his descendants are now the sole mediator between God and man. And there's a lot of passages about this in the New Testament. For instance, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Because Aaron and his line were never meant to be that final mediator, they were never meant to be the ultimate priest, the ultimate go-between between us and God. No, never. It was supposed to be Jesus. Jesus possessed and still possesses absolute purity and perfection. We've talked about that. The priest had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they offered it for the people. Why? Because they were sinners. The former priests, though they were many in number, I printed out my message today just so you know because I forgot my iPad at school, so there you go. I forget things too, Though there were many in number, they were prevented by death from continuing office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And because of that, we've talked about this, he is able to save eternally because he is eternal. All those who draw near to him. And we saw that in Hebrews chapter 7. So, as we see the glorification of Aaron and his sons, we should be reminded also of the glory of the priestly role of Christ. But also as Christians, we rejoice in this passage. Not because we are thankful solely because the Old Testament Jews were able to be with God. Although that's something to rejoice by. Because these sinful people can now fellowship with God. But as we look at this from a New Testament perspective, we kind of find ourselves in this story. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God's people, you and I, are priests ourselves. Which is interesting. 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9 says, You yourselves, this is Peter writing, you, you, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now as priests, Christians help mediate God to the world. What was the purpose of an Old Testament priest, an Old Covenant priest? He got God's message. He went before God, received it, 
and communicated that to the people. He was the mediator. He went from the people to God, God to the people. No, but as Christians today, we mediate God to the world. And how, how do we do that? Well, Peter tells us, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So our job isn't to kill sheep and kill oxen and kill lambs. It's horrible. No, our job is very specific. We make Jesus look big in this world today. Now, I love that passage. Why? Well, because God commissioned us. Sometimes in our lives we feel, you know, this sense of not belonging. What really is my purpose here? What really should I be doing? Well, there's a lot that we should be doing, but Peter makes it pretty clear we show people Jesus. And that's crazy because we're sinners. Why would God choose sinners to proclaim his name to the world? Well, it's because God loves us, right? Rather than a house, servants and mediators in the Lord's tabernacle temple on earth, see, Christians are called and consecrated to go out into the world to praise God. We don't necessarily require people to go to a specific building or to dress a certain way. No, no. We simply call them to trust in Jesus. Now, in fact, to be a Christian is to be a priest. I worked at a Catholic university when I was in college, and it's pretty crazy just to see the, the differences, how they have priests and they have nuns and they have just a bunch of different go-betweens. Sometimes it's kind of creepy. You walk into these like, dark hallways and there's like monks chanting different things, and you're like, I'm just trying to paint this wall, so if you could just not kill me. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was evident, though, because these college students were really who I worked with. They, could, they felt in and of themselves incapable of really going before God. Why? Because they weren't as spiritually mature. They weren't in that position of that priest. They didn't feel themselves valid to do that. Well, no. We as Christians are priests. We don't have priests that we go to. We are those priests. And God expects, or can I say, requires that we serve him. Now, the writers of the, of the New Testament and other church fathers could not imagine a Christian who was not involved some way in ministry. And we can kind of maybe even look back at this humorously. It was inherent in everything we know to be true about God to serve him. Why? Well, because of Jesus' death on the cross. We set that as our foundation. So, imagine if the Levitical priest just decided one day, I don't want to offer sacrifices anymore. It's nasty. It's a lot of work. I'm done with that. Well, what would happen? Well, in no short amount of time, not only would their sins not be forgiven, but when the high priest would go before God's presence, he would die. So for them, it was essential that they serve God exactly how God declared it. And same for us as Christians today. We as Christians must serve Christ and the church with our lives. And there's no minimum age or maximum age. You're not too young to serve God or too old to serve God. Think about it, just two simple stories in the Bible, the boy with the five loaves and two fishes. Probably one child who has never served God in such a great way that God fed thousands of people this one little boy's lunch. Contrast that with this old woman who gave two mites to God's temple. She gave essentially everything she had. There is no age requirement for you to serve God. And now that's great, but if we go back to our passage here, and we're going to look at the first couple verses, uh, the last couple verses of chapter 9, the question is, did God accept Aaron? Did Moses do everything right? Did God accept Aaron and his sons? Now look with me in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22. The Bible says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. 
together. They had gone, gone into, this is me talking, they had gone into the tent of meeting. Verse, verse 23, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And this is crazy, verse, verse 24. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So Moses' sacrifice was accepted. And we can see that, first of all, because Aaron was able to walk into the tent of meeting. That would be pretty nervous for me if I was Aaron. Like the first time, Moses is like, all right, Aaron, God said that you're the next man up. You're going to be the, the high priest. This is your job now, doing everything I've been doing. And he goes, all right, Aaron, I can, all right, Moses, I can do this. All right, now, come in with me before God's presence. And he's like, okay, well, hold up here. Now, did, did we sacrifice everything correct? Did we do everything exactly how we should have? Well, they did, and God blessed it. Moses' sacrifice and Aaron were accepted. And God demonstrated his acceptance by billowing fire out of the tent and consuming the burnt offering. I sometimes wish maybe God would kind of show us his will that way today. Like, it's like, all right, God, I don't really know what, you know, job I should have when I grow up. And God's like, somehow causes fire to come out of heaven and, like, consumes all of the bad textbooks and just, like, leaves one remaining. Oh, God, there, there it is. I guess I should be an accountant then. No, no, no. I proved today at lunch that I can't count. I brought out like four cups for dinner, and there were six of us sitting at the table. And I sat down to eat, and everyone's like, well, I guess Pastor and Mrs. Bond don't get to drink any liquid today. I'm like, okay, sorry, that's on me. So I shouldn't be in the Kansas. So let's all wrap this up together. I should be a history teacher, hopefully. We'll see. Um, God consumed the burnt offering. Now, what a sight. And the people wasted no time. The Bible says at, at the end of verse 24, they shouted. And they fell on their faces when they saw this. And God's presence is a terrifying thing. It is a terrifying thing. But for us, it's such a comforting thing. So the God of creation, and we've been here, the God of creation hovering over the expanse, the uncreated, unformed expanse, who then walked with man, was rejected by him in the garden. Then we see in Exodus the God of Mount Sinai, separate from, from his people, and warning them, don't even touch this mountain because of their uncleanness, is now, in this passage, the God of the tabernacle, dwelling right in the midst of his people. But today, if you and I are children of God, we don't have to wait for someone to give us permission to beseech God, nor must we travel a great distance to, catch, to, to merely catch a glimpse of his passing glory. But... The God of the mountain and the God of the tabernacle have become the God of our hearts. And he walks beside us today as our friend, as our brother, as our loving father, and our knowing God. So when we think about what should we do because of it, we see the Old Testament priests had a very specific job. They should offer sacrifices for the people. What should we as priests do today? God expects us to do something. God expects us to work and expects us to use our talents for his service, to bless others, and to bring glory to his name. So think, think with me for a second, and with this we'll close. Just a couple thoughts here. Have you maybe ever thought to yourself, how exactly do I serve God? What does that look like for me? I, I'm in high school, I'm in college, I'm working a job in the summer, I'm working somewhere in the secular workplace. What do I do? How do I serve God? Well, that's a good question. And we'd love to talk with you a little bit later. And Grace, Kevin, and I would love to have that conversation. But we, we understand that God has given each of us gifts. God's given each of us talents. And maybe you ask yourself the question, well, I don't really have any talents. Well, ask yourself this question. What do you love to do? Do you love to read? 
Do you love to talk to people? Do you love to travel? Can you use that to serve God? Absolutely. See, I love, I'm weird. I love to go in the library and write papers about historical things. Like, I'm never happier than when I'm by myself in a library with books surrounding me, just piles everywhere reading about ancient Greece or something. How can I use that to serve God? In all honesty. Well, I feel like God's calling me maybe to teach one day, for sure to be in the ministry. I can use that knowledge, and I can tie people back to history, see how God's worked in the course of human events. It's something simple that I can do, but because I know historical stories, cool stories, I can show people how God worked. There's so many passages, even as, as we think of like World War II, and like sometimes like before a battle, there was this like big fog that covered over, and people were able to escape before like the Nazis killed them. And you're like, okay, so God had that happen. And so I can look back in history and I can say, oh, look, God was in control of this. And hopefully I can lead people to Christ through that. There's no greater joy than using the talents and gifts God has given you for the purpose of serving him. And then we think about this ourselves. Maybe there is a way, and, and you know specifically how you are supposed to serve God. You think, this is what I want to do with my life. This is how I can point people to Christ. But there's maybe a sin in your life holding you back from serving him fully. We all have that. The priests had to be purified. They had to be perfect ceremonially before their service was effective. Maybe tonight, as we pray in a couple minutes, you need to repent and do business with God and return to Jesus. If we are called to serve Christ and make his name big, let's let nothing get in our way. So as we pray and then we go into Jesus is better than everything else, as we pray, you just do business with God however effective. Pray to him, ask his guidance, and then get into his word the rest of the week, and he will reveal his will to you. We're thankful that he is our priest and that he's called us to be priests as well. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. It's interesting how we can see this, this, this office that you set up thousands of years ago and how it applies to us today. Thank you that we have a job. We have a job to serve you. I thank you that you've given each of these teens and college students and even myself talents and enjoyments in life. And thank you that we can leverage those to serve you. It's awesome that you give us desires and you give us different personalities and then you expect us just to use them for you. So be with these teens, be with these college students. Help us to see needs, help us to see souls. I do pray, Lord, that we would let no sin get between us and you, that we would let nothing hold us back, as we've even been talking in Sunday school. We'd let no weights or sins slow us down from running this race to serving you. We have no greater joy than seeing your will done in this world because that's how we are satisfied. That's how we find meaning in life, by serving you. Thank you for who you are. We love you, Lord, so much. In your name I pray. Amen. So we have any? Do we have two? Jesus is better than everything else. This passage. Yes, sir. Absolutely. It's the nicest thing anyone's ever done. Quoted me verbatim.